Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 18, 1 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Well, let's pick up today with the story of the beginning of King Saul's reign as the first king of Israel as it's told in 1 Samuel chapter 11. And before we reread this short chapter and then summarize what we've learned about Samuel and Saul and the current condition of the tribes of Israel, let me reiterate that at least one aspect of the underlying theme that I have been emphasizing is that despite the divine providence and the unseen holy guidance that shapes history and pushes forward God's redemptive agenda. It is all miraculously carried out within the free will of humans, both of the evil and the righteous. And because this is the case, it necessarily happens that human beings make decisions and choices in the context of our own lives and within our own daily circumstances. It was no different for the Bible heroes and villains that we encounter in God's Word. Thus, even though the Bible's divinely inspired authors give us accurate and meaningful but exceedingly shortened versions of cosmically important events, we can, in hindsight, see God's hand at work. In fact, these events are really the stories of real people living in real communities, making decisions based on a, a multitude of factors, such as the current political realities, their personal and, and family traditions, relationships and cultural entanglements, their age and health, hopes, aspirations, temperaments and personalities personal preferences, societal trends, and, and more, just like mankind always has and always will. It's when we lose track of that fundamental fact that the Bible becomes such an ethereal and lofty document that it's nearly unintelligible and it's hard for us to identify with. And thus a lot more tricky than necessary to apply to our own lives and situations. It's when we lose sight that God's word is as full of humanity as it is of divinity that we create the strangest doctrines. Right? And we spend all of our precious time dwelling on the trivia while overlooking the substance. So especially as we study the books of Samuel and Kings, we're going to flesh out these characters and the cultural and political and familial situations inside of which this is all happening. Not only will the words on the pages of our Bibles suddenly make a lot more sense to our minds when we do this, but it will show us more fully, that the Lord still acts upon us and within us just as he acted within these beloved and at times maligned Bible characters. 
that we're reading about. And in the vast majority of time, Yehovah acts in ways that are hidden to us. And only with the passage of time do we stop to glance into that rear view mirror of our life. And that's when we will occasionally detect his handiwork and recognize his purposes. That's the lesson we're going to see in Samuel and in Kings. Let's reread uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel chapter 11, page 308 in your complete Jewish Bible. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up, set up camp to fight Yavesh Gilead, and all the men of Yavesh said to Nahash, if you'll make a treaty with us, we'll be your subjects. And Nahash the Ammonite replied, I'll do it on, the condi- on this one condition, that all of your right eyes be gouged out, and thus that will bring disgrace on all Israel. And the leaders of Yavesh answered him, Give us seven days' grace to send messengers throughout Israel's territory. Then if no one will come and rescue us, we'll surrender to you. The messengers came to Giba, where Shaul lived, and said these words in the hearing of the people. And the people cried out and wept. As this was going on, Saul came, following the oxen out of the field. And Saul asked, What's wrong with the people to make them cry like that? And they told him what the men from Yavesh had said. And the Spirit of God fell on Saul when he heard this. Blazing furiously with anger, he seized a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and then he sent them throughout the territory of Israel with messengers, saying, Anyone who doesn't come and follow Saul and Samuel, this is what's going to be done to his oxen. The fear of Adonai fell on the people, and they came out with united hearts. He reviewed them in Bezek. There were 300,000 from the people of Israel. The men of Judah numbered 30,000. And to the messengers that had come, they said, Tell the men of Javesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you will have been rescued. And the messengers returned and told the men of Javesh. And they were just overjoyed. And the men of Javesh said to Nakash, Tomorrow we'll surrender to you and you can do with us whatever you like. And the next day Saul divided the people into three companies. Then they entered the camp of the Ammonites during the morning watch and kept attacking until the heat of the day until those who remained were so scattered that no two of them were left together. And the people said to Samuel, Who are those men who said, Is Saul to rule over us? Hand them over to us so we can put them to death. But Saul said, No one will be put to death today because today Adonai has rescued Israel. And then Samuel said to the people, Come, let's go to Gilgal and inaugurate the kingship there. So all the people went to Gilgal. And there in Gilgal, before Adonai, they made Saul king. They presented sacrifices as peace offerings before Adonai there. And there Saul and all the people of Israel celebrated with great joy. The leadership of Israel has acknowledged that the Lord has dealt with their demand for a king like their neighbors in the person of Saul of Gibeah. And after Samuel summoned Israel's elders and tribal leaders to Mitzpah and presented them with their first king, he warned them, he warned them that what they have chosen is evil in God's eyes and unintended consequences awaited them. Saul was not unanimously hailed 
by the twelve tribes, by all of them, as Israel's supreme leader. There were many who hated the idea of having a king. Some because it was obvious that it angered God. Others were upset because it was so humiliating and so hurtful to Samuel, who had been leading them with selfless dedication for so long. But several of the clan and tribal chiefs were incensed because a king would automatically impinge on their personal authority and sovereignty. The greatest portion of citizens with this particular mindset was those tribes who occupied the southern region of Canaan, Judah and Simeon. Now Israel was, as of this time, divided into three identifiable political factions and alliances. Eight tribes occupied the north of the land. The two tribes occupied the south. And then there were three who occupied the east of the Jordan River in an area called the Transjordan. Now I realize that 8 plus 2 plus 3 adds up to 13 and not 12. But this is because the tribe of Manasseh split along clan lines with some clans electing to live in the Transjordan and others occupying the north of the Holy Land. King Saul's tribe, Benjamin, lay at the center of Canaan and it bordered all three political factions. This made Benjamin strategically important, but it also put them in a dicey situation. Because on the one hand, they could pick and choose which alliance to affiliate with and thus give them the greatest advantage. But on the other hand, they were vulnerable on three fronts. At this time, Benjamin was generally aligned with the northern coalition, with one notable exception. The city of Yavesh Gilead that was on the on the uh, uh, that was in the Transjordan. And this fact, of course, plays a very pivotal role in the story we just read. Now it was due to this unfavorable political situation that Saul was not immediately able to assume the throne and begin to rule like a real king. The opposition was just too great. So he went home to Gibeah and he resumed normal everyday life as a farmer and a herder and he waited for his opportunity to prove his merit, especially to those dissenters and hopefully gain the needed support. And he didn't have to wait very long. One day, (coughs) while he's out plowing his family's fields with a team of oxen, he hears a loud ruckus coming from the city. And he finds out that some runners from the Transjordan city of Yavesh Gilead have arrived with devastating news. Nachash, king of Ammon, had placed an ultimatum upon the city of Javesh Gilead. Surrender, and all the residents will live, but they'll have their right eyes gouged out. Or fight, and all will be slaughtered by Nachash's overwhelming armed forces. 
the people of Gibeah in Benjamin were wailing and crying upon hearing this. And when Saul found out what was happening, he reacted not by falling to pieces, but by becoming full of anger and determining to rescue the citizens of Yavesh Gilead from their fate. Now naturally, he full well knew that if he could persuade the tribes of Israel to muster its militia to follow him into battle, and that if God would grant him victory, chances were pretty good that afterward he could assume the kingship of Israel with only minor opposition. Well, we spent quite a while in our last lesson discussing why it was that the people of Gibeah were so upset over the happenings at Jabesh Gilead, a city 40 miles away in an entirely different tribal territory located across the Jordan. It turns out they were closely interrelated by blood. We looked back to about a century before the time of Saul when, as recorded in the book of Judges, 11 tribes of Israel ganged up on Benjamin to punish them. But the Gadite city of Yavesh Gilead refused to join in. The result was that after the 11 tribes decimated Benjamin, they turned their fury upon Yavesh Gilead and decimated them too in retaliation for their non-participation. Later, upon reflection of what had transpired, the tribal elders of Israel became concerned that the tribe of Benjamin would literally go extinct. So few were the survivors. So in a rather primitive but pretty expedient solution, 400 virgins were captured from the city of Yavesh Gilead and given to the few remaining Benjamite men as their wives. Now, the purpose, of course, was to repopulate the tribe of Benjamin. But the result was that the generation that came of it had mothers from the tribe of Gad and fathers from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, while custom and God's law technically made the offspring that came from the mixed tribal marriages Benjamites, Still, the cities of Gibeah in Benjamite territory and Yavesh Gilead in the territory of Gad were now very closely tied together by historical circumstance and by family. Now, King Saul, as did most of the other residents of Gibeah, had close relatives and friends living in Yavesh Gilead, and so it was logical that he would be angered and want to save them from Nakash. He sends out a message and a not-so-veiled threat to the tribes of Israel to muster for battle to rescue Jabesh Gilead. The message was a directive to gather at Bezek, and it was accompanied with a chunk of ox meat. Saul, obviously remembering the Levite who cut up his dead concubine, into twelve sections and sent the hideous pieces to all the tribes insisting that they punish Benjamin for killing her slaughters he slaughters and he cuts up his own team of oxen into pieces now during the story we read that the spirit of God descended upon Saul this event is usually tied together with Saul's anger making it a righteous God inspired anger but I think that's a mistake 
Okay? Rather, we should tie Saul's not-so-righteous outrage to the equally not-so-righteous act of slaughtering and dismembering his oxen. Okay? The goal of this cruel and gross act was to intimidate the tribes into compliance, but also to make them remember their guilt in their rash act of a hundred years earlier earlier of nearly eliminating Benjamin from the face of the earth. In the case of the Levite's concubine, it was a gathering designed to come together and punish Benjamin. Here, in the case of Saul's oxen, it was a gathering ordered by a Benjamite, Saul, to come and rescue other Benjamites, citizens, residents of Javesh Gilead. How could any Israelite refuse this? Here was an opportunity to at least in some way atone for a century-old wrong that nearly wiped out the tribe of Benjamin. Saul proved immediately that he could be both clever and ruthless. Now, look at verse 8. Take a look at verse 8. Verse 8 says that 300,000 men from Israel and 30,000 men from Judah came together to rescue Jabesh Gilead. By the way, we'll get different numbers from different Bible versions. Yours may have something different than that. Some are as high as 700,000 and 70,000 Judahites. Now this is mostly due to copyist errors and in some cases translators weren't believing the large numbers and reported very low numbers. Okay. But in each case, the ratio is 10 Israelites for every Judahite. Now, notice how this rather innocuous statement slips in the important piece of information that at this point in history, or soon thereafter when this event was actually written down, the three main political factions of Israel became all the more solidified to the point that the Hebrews were identifying primarily now with their political alliances rather than as a unified national entity of 12 tribes. And this even though they had technically a king. See, this is so critical to understanding the words of the Bible from here forward and especially as it concerns prophecy. Judah saw themselves as apart from the other tribes. And the northern tribes acknowledged this. Judah tended to see themselves as a sovereign entity. Here we see the story's narrator deal with this by actually giving the northern alliance the name Israel and the southern alliance the name Judah. Again, Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. At this time, that was part of the northern alliance, here called Israel. Now here's what this means for every Bible student. When the term Israel is used 
it must always be used in the context of time. Israel began, the term Israel began as merely one man's name, Jacob's new name. Okay. Then it became a clan. And after centuries in Egypt, that clan grew large enough to be seen as a whole separate people, meaning its own ethnic group. Then as each of Jacob's sons' families grew large, they were each given tribal status. Then at Sinai, God pronounced the tribes when taken together to be a nation set apart for him. However, from a human government standpoint, as of 1 Samuel chapter 11, this 12 tribe conglomerate did not hold a nation status. Nation status was probably the primary goal of the northern alliance of Israelite tribes when they demanded a king. That's what they wanted. They greatly desired for their Gentile neighbors to regard them as a nation. And as far as anyone knew in that era, in order to be considered a legitimate nation, one had to have a king. Otherwise you were just a tribe or an ad hoc alliance of tribes and clans and families. Without an identifiable and accepted central government, there was no nation. Now, as a result, one can't just lump together a variety of verses from Exodus and Joshua and Samuel and Kings and Ezekiel and the New Testament, wherever the word Israel appears, and take them all to indicate the same thing. Okay. Here in 1 Samuel 11 verse 8, we see the use of the term Israel as generally meaning all of the tribes tribes except the southern tribes. You see this? And the southern tribes consisted of Judah and Simeon, with Judah being dominant and Simeon quickly being assimilated by Judah. Now this makes a change a little bit in but a handful of years upon Saul's death. Now after after gathering at a place called Bezek, and while it's not certain the belief is that Bezek was located about uh, 12 miles northeast of uh, Shechem, okay, the runners from Jabesh Gilead are sent home with the joyous news that help was on the way. Okay, and the leaders of the city decide to play a coy. And so they send an intentionally ambiguous message out to Nachash. They say, tomorrow we will come out to you. Now our complete Jewish Bible says, we will surrender to you. But that misses the point. Okay? Coming out is how it ought to read. Coming out can mean surrender, but it can also mean give ourselves over to you, or it can mean march out to battle against you. So they didn't exactly lie to Nakash. They just gave him a report that allowed him to think whatever he wanted to think. And Nakash 
took it to mean they were surrendering. So using a rather standard Israeli military strategy that we've seen a number of times thus far, Shaul divides his forces into three groups and he attacks at the morning watch, which means a little bit before dawn. Now because the Ammonite troops were expecting to simply wake up in the morning and accept Yavesh Gilead's meek surrender, they were caught off guard with the furious attack of Saul's enormous militia. Those who survived ran in all directions and Nakash's army was effectively dissolved as a result. Now the battle achieved not only the deliverance of the residents of Jabesh Gilead from the hand of a foreign enemy, but it also gave Saul the victory and the notoriety he needed in order to begin his reign. The people of Israel, in verses 12 and 13, Israel now means, in a general way, the twelve tribes. Israel was so elated in their victory that they now wanted to put to death all those among them who had just weeks earlier refused to accept Saul as their king. Now, no doubt, that would have meant most of Judah. Because, but because Judah had sent a sizable contingent of troops to fight alongside the northern tribes, obviously it indicated that Judah was not so bent on its own separateness and sovereignty that it would ignore its place as one of the twelve families of Jacob. Nor would they openly defy the general political will of all the other tribes in accepting Saul as their king. Now it was Samuel who asked... Who was, who was asked, by the way. And there was the question was directed to Samuel. Shouldn't we go ahead and execute all those who, who had descended? But it was King Saul who answered with the magnanimous and unifying edict that no one will be put to death today because today Yehovah has rescued Israel. Here Israel, again, means all Israel all the tribes, even including Levi. Now, by this format of the people directing their request to Samuel, but Saul making the decision and publicly answering, the torch is passed. Samuel will now diminish as a leader, and Saul will increase. Samuel's role as a judge has ended. And now he is God's prophet who intercedes between God and his people, but he also brings God's oracle to the new king. Here, at this moment, right at this point in your Bibles, this is the end of the era of the judges and the beginning of the era of the kings. Now the leadership and the people of all Israel in general were on board. And in the joy and exuberance caused by their great victory, it was time for a national celebration and reaffirmation of Saul's coronation. The place selected was Gilgal, perhaps the holiest religious site among the several that were in use, by the way, for the Hebrews at this time. Now, this was the same place where Samuel had earlier commanded Shaul to go down and wait 
for him for seven days. Now, no doubt there was some kind of a sanctuary built there. All right? And priests were present. And certainly the Ark of the Covenant was there. Because we're told that before Yehovah they made Saul king. Okay? Before Yehovah, or before the Lord, before Adonai, is an idiom. All right? and, or, or a saying. And effectively it means in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. That's what it means. Okay. Now, the sacrifices that were offered really were part of a kind of makeshift ceremony all right, connected with this coronation event. There was no celebration or ritual specified within the law to inaugurate a king. All right, because no king was contemplated at that time. In fact, it was a very specific and appropriate kind of sacrifice that was even employed here. It was the Zeva Shlamim. It was a voluntary kind of sacrifice that was permitted for generally any kind of celebration that was also giving God the glory and thanks for something good that's either I anticipated or it's already happened. Okay. Further, the Zeva Shlamim kind of sacrifice can be eaten by the worshippers. So in addition to the religious aspect that it brought to the coronation celebration, this sacrifice also provided the main course all right, for the accompanying feast. All right, let's move on to chapter 12. Let's read Samuel chapter 12. Page 309 in your complete Jewish Bible. Samuel said to all Israel, Here, I have done everything you've asked me to do. I have made a king over you. There is the king walking ahead of you. But I'm old, gray-headed. There are my sons with you. I have walked at your head from when I was a boy until today. So here I am. Now is the time to witness against me before Adonai and before his anointed king. Does any of you think I've taken your ox or donkey or defrauded or oppressed you or accepted a bribe to deprive you of justice? And tell me, and I'll restore it to you. And they answered, You haven't defrauded or oppressed us, and you have accepted nothing from anyone. And he said, Adonai is witness against you, and his anointed king is witness against you today that you found nothing in my hands. And they replied, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, It was Adonai who appointed Moses and Aaron who brought your ancestors up from the land of Egypt. Now hold still, because I'm going to enter into judgment with you before Adonai regarding all the righteous acts of Adonai that he did for you and for your ancestors. After Jacob had entered Egypt, your ancestors cried to Adonai, and Adonai sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and had them live here in this place. But they forgot Adonai, their God, so he handed them over to Sisra, commander of the army of Hatzor, and to the Pushtim, the Philistines, and to the king of Moab, and they fought against them. But they cried to Adonai and said, We sinned by abandoning Adonai and serving the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now, if you will rescue us from the power of our enemies, we will serve you. 
So Adonai sent Yerubael, Bedan, Yiftach, Shmuel, and they rescued you from the power of our enemies on every side and you lived securely. When you saw that Nachash, the king of the people of Ammon, was attacking you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us. When Ananai, your God, was your king. Well, now here's the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, Adonai has put a king over you. If you will fear Adonai and serve him, obey what he says, not rebel against Adonai's orders, if both you and the king ruling you remain followers of Adonai, your God, then things will go well for you. But, if you refuse to obey what Adonai says and rebel against Adonai's orders, that Adonai will oppress both you and your leaders. Now therefore hold still and see the great deed which Adonai will perform before your very eyes. Now is the wheat harvest time, isn't it? I'm going to call on Adonai to send thunder and rain. Then you'll understand and see how wicked from Adonai's viewpoint is this thing you have done in asking for a king. And Samuel called to Adonai. And Adonai sent thunder and rain that day. Then all the people became very much afraid of Adonai and Samuel. All the people said to Samuel, Pray to Adonai for your servants so that we won't die because to all our other sins, now we've added this evil as well, asking for a king over us. And Samuel answered the people, Don't be afraid. You have have indeed done all this evil. Yet now... Just don't turn away from following Adonai, but serve Adonai with all your heart. Don't turn to the side, because then you would go after useless things that can't help or rescue. They're so futile. For the sake of his great reputation, Adonai will not abandon his people, because it has pleased Adonai to make you a people for himself. As for me... Far be it from me to sin against Adonai by ceasing to pray for you. Rather, I will continue instructing you in the good and right way. Only fear Adonai. Serve him faithfully with all your heart. For think what great things he's done for you. However, if you insist on doing wicked things, you will be swept away. Both you and your king. Theologians usually call this particular story Samuel's farewell address. But, but I think that's a bit off the mark. Samuel isn't dying. He's not disappearing from the scene. He's not retiring. Rather, his role is changing. Since Israel now has a new political leader in King Saul, Samuel must settle his account with those who he's led and served for the past several decades so that he can be at peace in his new role and the people will have a logical shift now to Saul's authority. Samuel has run his course as Israel's political leader and he has obeyed the Lord by giving Israel the king they demanded. But in the story that begins here in chapter 12, Israel starts to understand 
that they have given up more than they ever imagined by rejecting God, God's kingship and preferring a human to be their king. In their headstrong and wrong-minded enthusiasm to be like all the other nations, to be like everybody else, they've forgotten a national uniqueness that was embodied in their special relationship with God. The depth of their foolishness is starting to emerge. And they know it. But it's too late. They have their king. There's no returning to the old way. However, there is a bit of good news in that Samuel will remain to actively intercede for them, pray for them, and instruct them in the ways of the Lord. Now, that we have changed chapters doesn't mean we change location. We're still at Gilgal, okay, immediately following King Saul's reaffirmation ceremony. And as we look closely at this chapter, in many senses, Samuel's address to the people is also a covenant renewal ceremony of sorts. Why renew the covenant at this point? Because this is not only a change in leadership, but it's a change in the form of government. And therefore a change in how Yehovah will administer his covenant justice upon his people. Whereas for the past three centuries or so, the Lord's justice has been administered by means of judges. Now it will be by means of a monarch. Back in chapter 8, we witnessed Samuel explain to the folks that having a king meant that the king had the authority to make all kinds of rulings over them. But despite those rulings, that would in many cases make following God's laws much more difficult for the people. That is exactly what they were obligated to do under the covenant of Moses. Nothing has changed in that regard. God's Torah remains intact. So in verse 1, Samuel formally hands the scepter of political authority of Israel over to Shaul by saying, there is the king walking ahead of you. I have walked at your head from when I was a boy until today. Starting in verse 3, Samuel is clearing his account with the people. At the same time, he's declaring his innocence. It was the people, not Samuel, that insisted upon an earthly king. And now that they have one, it's time for the people to admit that Samuel never did them any wrong. Samuel wasn't at fault, nor was he inadequate in his leadership. The main thing he did not do was he didn't take from the people. The Hebrew word translated as take is lecha, and it is repeated in this story several times to draw the contrast between God's judge Samuel who served but did not take and Israel's new monarchy, monarchy that will take it won't serve though the people were naive and blind 
to have demanded a new form of government, now they are forced to publicly admit before God that Samuel was just and honest and in no way deserved the unceremonious heave-ho that he had, they had, he had received from them. He didn't deserve it. So Samuel tells the people to publicly pronounce anything they have against him. And they acknowledge that he has served them faithfully and not done them any wrong. And to cement the people's statement for the record, Samuel invokes Jehovah as the spiritual witness and King Saul as the earthly witness to the people's legal declaration of Samuel's innocence. Case closed. In verse 6, the shoe is now on the other foot. Samuel essentially casts himself now in the same light as Moses and Aaron. All three anointed by God for service to him. And what follows amounts to a legal discourse. Samuel voluntarily stood before the people, giving them an opportunity to accuse him of legal wrongdoing. And none having been found, he now proceeds to accuse them. And like a prosecutor in a trial, Samuel lays out a case against the Hebrew people and their leaders, and he begins with outlining the history that leads up to this indictment. And the history begins with the righteous deeds that the Lord did for Israel to deliver them from Egypt and to bring them into a land of their own. The Hebrew word for righteous deeds is tzedakah. Tzedakah. It means deeds of mercy. Deeds of kindness. Deeds of grace. It involves no merit on the part of the one who's receiving it. You know, it is instructional for us to learn that in God's economy, his definition of righteousness in this context is for us to do deeds of mercy and kindness and grace to others performed within the framework of the Torah. Righteousness, tzedakah, is so misunderstood especially within Christianity. Biblically speaking, righteousness is on the one hand a condition or status bestowed upon us by God. And on the other hand, righteousness is deeds, it's acts, it's works that we physically and actively perform which by definition is for the benefit of our fellow man. Judaism tends to focus almost exclusively on the latter and Christianity on the former. Such imbalance by both camps is unwarranted and it's misguided. One cannot hope to attain the first kind of righteousness by means of deeds. However, upon being bestowed with righteousness by God, we're duty-bound to do the second kind of righteousness in which deeds are the point. 
In verse 7, where our complete Jewish Bible says, Now hold still because I'm going to enter into judgment with you. That's a little more cryptic, I think, of a translation than necessary. First, to hold still or to stand is meant in the same sense here as standing before a judge. It is absolutely meant to imply a legal proceeding here in Samuel. And the people are essentially told to stand before the judge who is God. The people are to stand as the accused before God so that Samuel can present his case as the prosecutor in a trial. God will judge them. He will pronounce his verdict now through his prophet, Samuel. Samuel reminds them that after Jacob had gone down to Egypt to live, the Israelites became slaves and they cried out to Jehovah for deliverance, which he gave to them by bringing them to Canaan. However, the ancestors of the accused responded to God's saving Zedekah on their behalf by being unfaithful to the Lord. They apostatized and they served other gods. In turn, the Lord punished them by handing them over to the king of Hatsor and to the Philistines and to the king of Moab, to name just a few. What we have here is Samuel recounting an all too familiar theme found in the book of the Judges, a theme that I call the cycle of sin. The people apostatize from God. They're oppressed by foreigners as punishment. They repent and ask for mercy. God hears them, sends a deliverer, a judge, and they're restored. Over and over again, Israel did this. And they are on the verge of doing it again in their rejection of God as their sovereign. Instead, placing their trust in a human Because the era of the judges was what the current residents of Canaan were born into and because it was typified by Israel's constant backsliding into apostasy, Samuel invokes the names of Israel's recent and familiar heroes, all of them being judges. Yerubael was an alternate name for Gideon that had been given to him by his father. Yishtak, Jephthah, was that infamous judge who, although he delivered Israel from Ammon, the same enemy, by the way, that King Saul had just defeated. And so we see why Samuel chose Jephthah as only one of four judges he used as an example. But this same man also killed his own daughter as a sacrifice to God. Bedan is, is a curious choice, mainly because his name is unknown in either the scriptures or Jewish tradition. The general consensus is that this is a a corruption, it's a copyist error that has been handed down for more than 2,000 years. The suspicion is that the real name is Barak, not Bedan. Since he was the one who fought and defeated Sisra and the king of Hatzor, something Samuel has just mentioned. The final name on the list is Samuel's own. Now some say that is too as a copyist error since Samuel would have been too modest to mention himself. Well, they say it should be Samson. 
which connects well with Samuel's mention of the Philistines. Now that's certainly possible. However, there's equally as good a reason that Samuel was indeed referring to himself because he's the last judge. And it makes sense because Samuel was the most recent judge to fight and defeat the Philistines. So it was probably Samuel. Well, verse 12 adds a new piece of interesting information. It says, and we'll close with this, When you saw that Nakash, the king of the people of Ammon, was attacking you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us. In other words, the author of this book writes that Samuel is saying that Nakash played a key role in the northern alliance of tribal leaders deciding that they needed a king to defend them from foreign threats. And these threats were quite quite real. These were not contrived. These weren't exaggerated excuses to move to a monarchy form of government. Therefore, the political condition at the time the leaders of Israel demanded that Samuel anoint a king was that the Philistines in the west were saber-rattling and Nakash in the east was on the move. These leaders felt that Israel was in a pincers and they needed a military leader, a strong leader, a king to protect them. Let's stop here and we'll continue the story next week.